This is an ABC podcast. It's that happiest time of the year. Yes, the holiday season. And here at Blueprint, well, we thought we'd celebrate. I'm Jonathan Green. This is Blueprint for Living, a fabulous Christmas special. We're gathering for lunch with the, the Blueprint immediate family, a lunch made by Annie Smithers. And we're having it at the garden of Paul Bangay, Stonefields, joined by Tim Entwistle and Colin Bissett. What a splendid thing this is. I'm uh, at Paul Bangay's beautiful Stonefields, about to meet the entire Blueprint gang. We are gathered here for Christmas. Well, pre-Christmas. little Christmas treat for you and for us. Ah, Tim Whistle. He's here already. Hello, Tim. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely amazed, to be honest. Well, often we go wandering in your garden. Um, here we are in Paul's. Yeah, they're just this little small backyard garden. I, it's, it's a simple affair. Come past the, those wonderful oaks on the way in, which is exciting. We'll have, is have a go and look at them. Yes. And, and these hedges, which I know um, you've talked to Paul a lot about. but um, Well, it wouldn't be Paul's garden without <laughs> a hedge. We're walking down towards the house here, and it's, it's a... There's a fair bit of water feature going on. What's it your first is. impression? Of order. It is, it is very ordered, and that's, um, I expected that. But actually, what, there's a lot of really subtle colour. I mean, there's, there's, it's a lovely time of year, of course, so yes. we've got the, the purples and the mauves. Everything's, neat, everything's neatly trimmed. Yeah, that's the interesting thing, those beds within the hedge. There's a lovely looseness and chaos about them. It's a nice, nice juxtaposition. Yeah, it's, it's, and this parterre planting too is something you know, I used to love in, in the UK, actually. I think it, they, they do it particularly well, and Paul's obviously replicating it here, but doing something... We're moving down, aren't we, into where it gets... There's, there's more and more of these... these more parterre. <laughs> more, more parterre, and even done away with the things in between, so it's just the box hedges, which is pretty impressive. It's, it's impressive. This orderliness, I think I, I'd... You know, I'd just be wanting to it's put something out of, of place. It is a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, in our botanic garden, we don't really um, do this. Have an orderly moment. No, no. I mean, we have little yeah, neat that's... areas, but we, we like... To, there's a little bit of a sense of the wild, I think, we like to incorporate. Well, here we are. We've come to the door. I think I see Mr Bango waiting. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, here he is. <laughs> Paul, hello. Good morning. Do you know Paul. Tim? Yeah, yeah, of course so I do. There. Come in, please. Come, come in, come in. Oh, it's Ruby the Spaniel <laughs> with Ruby. a treat. With hello, a peacock Ruby. in her mouth. <laughs> well done, Ruby. Not a real peacock, I have to say. A stuffed toy peacock. <laughs> Welcome to Christmas. Christmas. Christmas, Christmas at Stonefields. Stone Perfect. Yeah. Christmas in Australia. You're playing my favourite carol. I know. <laughs> As per the request. Can I have the request in my yeah. Excuse me, who's what this? Do you want to listen to? Look who's in the kitchen. It's Addie Smithers. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Hello. Oh. There we go. Hello. Hello. Now, do you have you two met? Um, we have We once. have in the rest. You came to the restaurant. Exactly. I enjoyed a lovely meal and I came out to say what a lovely meal I'd had. Yes. Yeah. We're about to go and look at Paul's Christmas table. No, we've set oh. it up especially for Blueprint. Let's go see. It's, show, it's a show special the, show Blueprint the way. Christmas table. <laughs> Come through. 
What a beautiful thing. Look at that. So, Paul, I want a description. Okay, so we, this is our peacock tablecloth. I went to India one year and, and commissioned this, especially in recognition of Harold. So it's all the colours ha- Harold, of Harold. Harold is the house peacock, for He's those the who house don't peacock, know. Yes. And, an actual peacock. And we thought, what better to have red peonies for Christmas? Like, they you can't are. have them in the Northern Hemisphere. It's one of the great delights they are of a Southern a, Hemisphere what a, Christmas. What a beautiful scarlet. And there's beautiful, <laughs> there's beautiful baubles. Yes, big glass baubles that, that I've collected over the years. I've had them for many, many years. Lovely crackers for us. And sequoia. Now, Tim will appreciate that. Did you have to go up the top of the tree to get those? No, the, no. Low, the low-hanging branches oh, are the best gosh. ones to get them from. I get them every Just year. Just on the red, though. Yeah. So this is a Christmas red. I Because yeah. we've got a little native rhododendron, which is, comes out in full flower this time of year. Yeah. With, with bright, but that's a very different red. It's kind of bright and glossy and showy. You you think this deeper red is more Christmas. I, I always think this says Christmas, this really deep red. Look, it's the same colour as the Christmas baubles. It's a very Santa we, tunic we, we, kind we of We matched. Red. Okay. One of the things Tim and I do, Paul, is, is, is wander around gardens seasonally, mainly years. But we're going to do that in yours. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> but we've got a great critic here. I'm very nervous. Well, let's go. Let's, where will you take us first? I, I, I think we'll go to the Oak Lawn first. Oh, that, that would be, that would I be splendid. Like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. No. We, we often start our walk in the Oak Lawn at the we Melbourne do. Gardens. We yeah. do, because it's near the coffee. That's <laughs> correct. <laughs> That's exactly right. All right, then. Oak Lawn it is. Oak Lawn it is. Shall we? Yeah. Now, Tim... I'm not sure that the big oak tree on your oak lawn is that Quercus canariensis. Uh, the, the the really really big one in the gardens is, but yeah. the, the one that you may be thinking of, I think, is a robur though. There's a it's when a, you first go in the gate. Well, you've been the one that's not there anymore. Oh, is it gone? See, that I haven't been for oh, a while. This will be the white oak. Yes. No, this is. I think you're yeah, thinking, that, yeah, there, yeah, that was a, a hybrid between a white oak and possibly an English oak. Right. And it fell over a couple of years ago. And we've now we now have a a stump, and we've planted three, three new oaks that will. And what be, did it die of? Uh, old, age, old age, wind, a uh, little bit of maybe climate change. It's got stressed in recent years, so we're planting three, what we call climate adapted oaks. So from California yeah. and um, from Mexico. Right. So because we, when I first came here, we planted a lot of oak trees. We yeah. planted the robur. We planted the English yes. oak. And realised it needed a little bit of nurturing. But then I discovered the Quercus canariensis, the Algerian oak. And it just does so well here for us. It really just thrives. I think it's going to be what we should replace a lot of English oaks yes. with. So we've got yes. both in the gardens. Yeah. And a lot of, there are a lot of hybrids around too. I don't know whether yours yeah. are true canariensis, but no. you find they're a bit in between, yeah. I, I do like actually trying, trying to work. Matt, do, can I ask one question first, yes. though? Because we're going to see it in the leaf. Yeah. Does it lose its leaves? No. So we've got quite a lot of them. Okay. 75% of them hold their leaves yes. completely yes. green. And 25% lose their leaves. Of the canariensis. Of the canariensis. This, this is very interesting. We'll talk about this later. But this is sort of the garden we're going through, though. This, your, by your pool and the lawn here, this sort of gorgeous infinity view into well, New South Wales. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're looking all the way to Bendigo there. I mean, the important thing about this garden was the view. Like, I love the way the Italians create these houses on hilltops and, yes. and the whole yes. garden is focused on the view, yeah. sort of like framed from hedges or something. Job so done. Job done? <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> and it's, I mean, there's no better time, is there? Is this, well, there are many better times in a garden, but everything is so happy right now. It, well, particularly this year because we have had so much rain. Well, you might say that, but we are actually, my Tim, my Tim the gardener, is replacing a lot of perennials that died because it was too wet. 
Well, there you go. There's a downside. Yeah. Now, now, this is something we wouldn't have in the garden, is turf of this quality. It's pretty good, <laughs> isn't it? It's not there bad. It's pretty fine. <laughs> do, do you, you must spend a lot of time on your hands and knees. <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, Tim does. Well, Tim does. Yes, he does. It's his pride the, and joy, this lawn. The spring in this turf is extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, we've spoken about lawns and not having a lawn versus having a lawn, but there is something quite joyful in summer about walking around bare feet. On a lawn. Which you would do in that with great pleasure on yep. that lawn. It's also something we, in the Botanic Garden, we often say, well, let's keep a green lawn in, in summer because for the whole community, having a, a communal space that is green, people can sit on and picnic, I think is... Oh, which they do. Something we should and, support, yeah. And it, it's, it, on a hot day... It's such a cooling element, isn't it, the green lawn, yeah. sitting on a green lawn? Well, it's a big thing in ours too, the spaces between the... Ah, there we go, the oaks. Hello, oaks. <laughs> Now these, so see the 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 bark is actually one of the quite helpful. Oh really? Tell, yeah, tell really. Signs. But you've got lichen all over it. I know, and I love that. That's my favourite thing. <laughs> <laughs> is the lichen-covered trunks? Things are a bit, they beautiful? Things are a bit bleak up here, you know. <laughs> so and 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 we they were all bought as canariensis yeah. from a nursery. Not from acorns. So, th- so there's probably a bit of variation there, do you there think? Probably, there probably are, but, but if it's little sort of plate-like and, and uh, sort of reticulate, if you like, the, the bark, then that's more canariensis. If it's got furrows, deep furrows, that's more your English oak. But I, I've tried... I walk, you know, I walk around every garden and I say, having a look at the bark, the leaf and whether it loses them in winter, yeah. and it's a mess. It's, yeah. They are. As you, what's it, promiscuous? Tell. Yeah, they Promiscuous, are. yeah. Promiscuous plants. And uh, Tim... Our pride and joy of the whole stone bells is our Eucalyptus vimularis. Do you love those? They are. Yeah, and you've, you've got some bits hanging off there too. I'm going into sort of managing public <laughs> public spaces now. Could could fall risk. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yes. I mean, the, the, I always say the wonderful thing about these trees, that they're the only trees that were here when I came, is that there was a lovely clump of them on either side of the garden. So they're not mm. in the garden. Yeah. They sort of frame the That's garden nice framing, on, on, aren't they? on yeah. the side. So we don't care if they drop their limbs and branches in that part of the garden. Now, Paul, yeah. we have waiting for us, Mr Colin Bissett. Yeah. This is our little blueprint roadshow yeah. idea. Um, he's, you've all brought little things to show to Colin, and Colin is going to talk about them. Paul, yes. what have you got for Mr Bissett? I've got a pair of secateurs. So, <laughs> of course you have. <laughs> My favourite tool is a, is a pair of secateurs because, um, well, I work hard during the week and don't get much time to get out in the garden and the gardeners are very protective of their garden. Tim might know this. And so if I come out with a shovel, they, they scream at me and tell me to go away. But, but if I come hide. with secateurs, they know it's quite safe. <laughs> so I'm always picking flowers, pruning things, you know, picking big branches to bring inside. So secateurs are definitely my favourite. All right, Colin, over to you. Well, picking and pruning is precisely the reason secateurs came into being. It all started in the late 18th century with grapes and the Marquis Bertrand de Mauville. Coming from the vineyards of France, his invention was intended for snipping bunches off the vine and also for trimming the plants themselves. He called it a secateur, from the Latin secare, to cut. 
It was inspired by the efficiency of the guillotine, with the blade slicing past the static base, just like a pair of bypass secateurs do today. Of course, as a noted royalist, de Molville might have experienced that at first hand, but he skipped the country when the French Revolution became more bloodthirsty. Unlike scissors, the blades of his secateur were pushed apart by a sprung piece of metal set between the handles, making continuous clipping a breeze. Today's versions usually have a spring mechanism, sometimes enhanced with a ratchet, so that thicker stems can be cut with ease. The reception to his invention was muted. In pre-industrial times, there were endless gadgets for cutting and shearing, and his was seen as rather dainty, their easy action being suitable for a lady, wishing to snip a few blooms for a posy, perhaps. But that changed. By the 1870s, they were the tool of choice in vineyards, with growers and harvesters able to do their work quickly, thanks to the secateur's efficiency. They became symbols of the gentle art of gardening, too, much more romantic than a spade. Vita Sackville West was almost always described as having secateurs wedged in the top of her boot, if not always at the ready in her hand. In turn, she wrote how, as an object of destruction, their use might be lessened to allow plants, such as tea roses, to burgeon and blossom. That's the thing with a pair of well-oiled and sharpened secateurs, the impulse to keep snipping. And yet in the right hands, as we can see at Stonefields, secateurs mean no buxus hedge need ever have a leaf out of place. I'm having this thought because I'm looking at these oaks and they're young trees, you know, this, this garden has so much life still in it, yeah. um, even though you've been here 20 years, this, this has centuries still to give and, and with the two of you with, with Tim who's of course in, steward of public garden spaces and yourself you make a lot of private garden spaces yeah. including this one of yours, that overlap is I think a really interesting thing because you won't always be here No, sadly not And what happens to the garden? Is, well, that a, is that a thing that, that should endure as, a, as a, a, some sort of a public space? I believe when you, when you create a garden of this scale and of this beauty, I think it always should be shared with the public. So, we, you know, we've got a history here of sharing it. You do a lot of that. We do a lot of that. We, we used to open every year for Stephanie Alexander's Kitchen Garden Foundation of 8,000 people on the weekend, trampsing through the whole garden, respectfully, and we didn't have much damage. And then we do seasonal tours here. So it's always open to the public in some, some way or form. And it's, for a garden owner, it's just a wonderful joy to listen to people's comments as they walk around. Yeah. So I think you have a responsibility to open it up. And I think that I, my wish is that I, hopefully it'll always be as it is, or, you know, it'll evolve certainly, but, you know, it'll always be a lovely big garden that people can access. Because a garden is just the thing, isn't it, Tim? I mean, it's, it is a thing of centuries, potentially. They are, and I was, I was thinking about this on the way here, actually, whether a garden... Do you treat a garden like this as a little bit ephemeral? Like, it, it, is, is part of its... It's your your sort of take on this place. Yeah. Some And a lot of home gardens, smaller gardens, people will come in and put their own... You know, it, yeah. it's turning over. Yeah. In a botanic garden, you have this longevity in a public garden, and you think about hundreds of years, and you, you just... Tinker, tinker around the edges, perhaps. Yeah. So I, I think this, how we look after a garden like this, and this is such a, you know, a marvellous creation, 
we don't have that set up perhaps like a place like the no. UK has, which no. the Royal Horticultural Society, yeah. the mm. the system of visiting, the money that can go in to support yeah. them. We don't have any of that. In we Australia. don't have that. And we, don't ha- we just don't have a culture of open gardens. I mean, we have the open garden scheme, but it died and it's been reincarnated now. But it's just we don't have the numbers here to sustain gardens, private gardens. Whereas, I mean, the British experience is that the, the visitorship, yeah. Can sustain a garden. Well, I just finished reading the uh, Lawrence Johnson's biography and he was talking about the creation of Hidkit. And when the National Trust first took it on, it was the first garden they ever took on as a garden in the 1940s. And the visitor numbers were so low when they first took it on, it was creating great loss. And they wondered how it would ever sort of create a profit. And now I think they get 120,000 visitors a year. And that sustains and, and the property. And it sustains yeah. the property, yeah. But it took them 20 or 30 years to get mm. those visitor numbers. I want you to show Tim what's probably one of my favourite spaces in this garden. The woodland. Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> how, how did, you, how did, how did I you know, know that? <laughs> Everything is looking so splendid through here. It's been a been a good growing, it's good cer- growing spring. Certainly has been a good growing spring. Yes. <laughs> it's funny though when you create private gardens like this, you don't create them of a scale that you would create a botanic garden. Like our paths are only sort of domestic in scale. Yes. So quite often opening it up is is an issue because of, because of that sense of scale. You couldn't, you couldn't fit three cocker spaniels and two pushes abreast. <laughs> no, no well, in the difficult. Melbourne Gardens, I, I was told, and I don't know if it's true, that our paths are wide enough to have two people with those big bustle kind of dresses on. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and so one could walk one way and one walk so back in the, in the sort of 19th century. Well, that's probably right. It's about that. If yeah. you measure it up, it's about, it's about that. But that whole thing, it, it, building a garden like this, whether it's for the public or yourself, I find that really intriguing because you... you as you say, the paths and you don't have to put toilet blocks and all that kind of thing, but how do you... It's removing a spider from my shoulder. Yes, yeah. Is that one of yours? Yes. <laughs> Nothing bites up here. Yeah, so how do you make that call? I mean, is it for you first or is it for the visitor? Well, it started life, of course, as for us first, yeah. as did Cruden Farm for Dame Elizabeth. Yeah. And now that is fully open to the public and we are partially open to the public. We have had to put toilets in. And things like this, when you come to the woodland, the grass wears away at the base of steps because people, a lot of people are using it. And so we've had to now put these pavers in to sort of compensate for that. So Into a, the woodland we into go. Into the woodland we go. Okay. There's always change happening because of those reasons. <sighs> Tim, d- d- tell us what we see. More of that lawn. <laughs> I'm just so excited by this turf here. Uh, and and we're, it's a circle, a circle uh, surrounded by, by different colour green. And you can see over, you can see those eucalypts over the top, which I, I yeah. do like. But this is a, a, little, a little oasis you've yeah. created. Yeah. Do you, I, do, I feel like I should be standing in the middle. I'm not sure. Is we it, can. We, we can, can do we that. We can go right into the middle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th- I mean, this was a response to the environment, like... When I first created the garden, there was no shade. Yeah, it's You cool. know, you always create a garden in a paddock, you always get full sun. And we just, for like three or four summers, we had no shade. And so I just mm. wanted to create a woodland to give us this lovely microclimate where the temperature drops three or four degrees in summer and you get shade. You can plant these lovely softer woodland plants. Just name some plants around the circle for us. Please. Hostas, Ligularia, Solomon seals, Aruncus, Viburnums, Dogwoods. Um, Even a cardiocrinums, we've got a few cardiocrinum giganteums in here. All very soft woodland plants yeah. that need a bit of tender care. And a beautiful play of texture and shape and shade of green. And seasonal, like, you know, mm. we get spring flowers mm. and the autumn foliage from these sugar maples is sensational yeah. in autumn. Yes. And it, feel, it feels like you're in a sunken garden, but you're not. Yeah. But that's an interesting 
Yeah, it is, isn't it? We haven't, we've dropped, what, two steps? Two but... steps, but we're actually elevated there and at the same level on that side there. Right, we're, we're sort of winding our way back to the house. We'll go through the white garden, should we? Why not? Why not? I mean, your climate here is... Oh, it's a wonderful climate. It's, it's so distinct. Yeah, well, it's 600 metres above sea level, mm. and so it gives you a lot of the cold winters. Mm. But you also get cool summer nights, mm. which is often a problem for ripening tomatoes. Okay. Which we'll talk about with Annie later. We will. Yeah. But I, I, we just love this climate. It's, so, it's a much softer climate up here. Mm. So you haven't planted any of the oaks with the yeah, ever, like ever, evergreen oaks or home oaks or anything no, like that? No, we haven't, no. and I should. I mean... I, I love home oaks, yeah. the, the Quercus ilex. Yeah. yeah, I love those. Yeah. Really love those. They're our, they're our Quercus roba. Yeah, okay. We, we must go and look at those, John. Yeah. Rod our way. We'll check the bark. <laughs> and, and did you see the willow oaks in, on no, your way in? No, this one. Okay, I... we have to go to the willow oaks <laughs> because <laughs> I, was, I know that's going to excite Because we don't have, it, we don't have that, that particular oak in that we have about, I think, 50 or 60 different oaks and we don't have the willow oak. Really? Several oak know. trees later. We've got them all, I think, here. <laughs> <laughs> I think we might have a monopoly on them. We have about 200 of them, I think. What? I mean, why, why, why did you plant that? <laughs> I saw them once and just fell in love oh, with them. Right. So okay. Here's our English oak. Yeah, okay. And this will lose its leaves. In These all lose their leaves, yeah. yeah. I love, I love we... just little details, just by the way, like the little dry stoning around this. The, the culvert. The culvert yeah. here under the path. Yeah. Beautiful. Nothing gets untouched by beauty up here. Nice principle. <laughs> nice principle, isn't it? Wow. <laughs> Who have we got here? Well, it is an English oak, but I was trying to... There's sort of a slight furrowing of the bark, which <laughs> sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. A furrowing of the bark. I just, if the leaves go in winter, that's nice. They, 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 these all go in the winter. No, I'm, I'm calling a halt to the Oak Appreciation <laughs> Society. We're not going to see the willow oaks. Oh, we're not going to see oh, the willow oaks. No, we are not. Okay. We're going okay, this way. OK, all right, OK. All right. But I shall see them on the drive out, won't I? I'll yeah, show you on the way out. <laughs> Back now into the parterre. This is the rill cool, yeah. trickling towards the house. And this is so. This is very um, or southern Spain or yes, or or, or, or Persian or <laughs> Mughal or yeah, yeah. which I, I do love. I think it's well. I love the way they move water through their gardens, especially in a hot environment. Well, there was, I was thinking. I think it was Geelong Botanic Gardens, and I shouldn't be rude about, it, but they had a very trickly water feature, yeah. which was very pleasant, and they've now put a big fountain in. And it's oh. changed the whole um, oh. atmosphere. It's, really? it's much more... It's louder and dramatic. And it's, that's fine. It's kind of a different thing. But I prefer the little trickle. It's such a... Yeah. I mean, it's such a sort of instinctively cooling sense just to hear that, yeah. regardless just, of anything else. Yeah, to hear it and to see it. I mean, we sit here... Mm. We can sit in the sitting room and see there's that large little jet of water coming out of that snake's mouth. It really is uh, very cooling. Uh, Tim Whistle, now, you, you too, as part of our little Christmas treat, have brought... Something for Mr. Icon, Colin Bissett. What have you got? Well, a little botanical uh, item, and it's a, a hand lens. So for a for a, for a gardener as well as a, a botanist, you, you you look at the plants, and you might, might want to work out what they are. You might want to look at the detail, and just a very simple hand lens that you sort of flip open. Uh, you can suddenly see that detail. You see the cells. You see the little hairs on the leaves. You can look at a flower, and for a botanist, it's an, a, an essential. I wonder how iconic it is, Colin Bissett. Jonathan, it's quite a design classic, in fact. And Tim, your lens isn't much different from those used well over a hundred years ago. 
It's a triplet lens, which is in fact three different lenses, two concave, one convex, that are bonded together to create something that can magnify ten times or more. Better than that, though, is how there's no distortion of the image when viewed from different angles. The most famous type is the Hastings triplet, designed by American physicist Charles Hastings, which appeared in 1879. The bonding of the lenses was crucial, as it couldn't interfere with the clarity or the colour of anything being scrutinised. They used Canada balsam, a product made from the resin of the balsam fir, the most popular Christmas tree due to its powerful pine scent. Hastings went on to design optical lenses for the most powerful telescopes of the early 20th century. Before the triplet, though, you would have had to use a thick single lens designed by Henry Coddington in 1829, which was more like the sort of magnifying glass used to read the small print in a book. It was fine for general close-ups, but the triplet lens is much more powerful, giving extraordinary detail even in high magnification, which is why it's also used by jewellers inspecting the facets and floors of a precious stone. The jeweller's loop, it's called, but it's just the same as a botanist's. The beauty of these lenses is their portability, being able to hang from a lanyard when outside. The alternative would be a microscope, hardly handy. It's likely, though, that the future will be digital, with stronger lenses even on mobile phones, allowing crisp close-ups meaning Tim could take a botany sample and a selfie and share it online, all in one go. But maybe that's not the spirit of the true botanist. I suspect the call of the loop will go on. On Blueprint for Living, this is our fabulous Christmas special coming to you from Paul Bangay's wonderful stone fields in central Victoria. Here with Paul, with Annie Smithers, Ruby the Spaniel and Tim Whistle. Hello, Ruby. ABCRN, often informative. This is Sam Robertson getting stung by a huntsman wasp on purpose. Always entertaining. Blessed be the fruit of Radio National. May the Lord open, Commander. It's not just our individual attention that's collapsing, it's our collective attention. A more authoritarian world led by Russia and China. Or maybe the way to think of it is a multiple set of connections. Stay informed and be entertained. ABCRN. You're listening to a Blueprint for Living Christmas special with Paul Bangay, Annie Smithers, Tim Mitwistle, Colin Bissett and me out at Paul Bangay's place, Stonefields, and our journey resumes in Paul's veggie patch. Now, Annie Smithers is on the faux bois sipping champagne. Where's his her want? Hello, Annie. Jonathan. I thought, no. We're out here. I thought when when you finished your drink, I thought that you and Paul and I might go for a little veggie garden wander. We can do that. What's in your veggie garden? You're ahead of me. We'll find out. Come on. Yeah, I know what he's got that I don't have yet. (laughs) What's that? Broad beans. They're almost finished. Oh, no, we've picked them. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Ours are so far I'm ahead, the, we've picked them and eaten them. I'm the only person in the universe that has broad beans for New Year's Day. Well, that's a market advantage of a well, sort. it could be, but it's... I mean, if anyone wants a hearty rose, you can't go past the ragosas. Nice fragrance, they just don't have to do it. They don't get the diseases... 
they just will reward you with all these flowers and they don't have that sort of sticky feeling that normal hybrid tea roses have. It's also bee heaven in there. Oh, yeah, the bees love it. Where's your cocker spaniel? Did you bring her? No, she's, she's elsewhere at the moment. She would have been, a, you know, a, an annoying handful. Why? Well, she would have just played with Ruby. Well, this, this is the secret that we, we've shared this morning, that, that Paul, Tim and I, we all have cocker spaniels. Yeah, all three of us. Seriously. Right. Ruby loves running around the vegetable garden because there, sometimes there's the odd rabbit in there. Oh. <laughs> Hold on, our veggie garden, I have to explain, is not looking great because I haven't had time to get in here, but this is my job at the veggie garden and I will be in here over the next couple of weekends. But the pride and joy of my veggie garden is the gooseberries, which I grow every year and get a great crop. And I offer them to Andy oh, and she says, them. no, I don't know what to do with and them. train them beautifully. No. What are you seeing there, Annie? He's got this beautiful, I mean, it's sort of, well, they are espaliered, I yeah. suppose, in yeah. the vase shape. Yeah. Um, so they're beautifully trained and they're, you know, they've been snipped and tended so that they actually grow gooseberries. I, and they the are. reason I, I don't like gooseberries them. is I did go to England at one stage and my mother's dear friend cooked the most frightful thing I've ever had to eat. Gooseberry fool? No, she bought this amazing, beautiful Scottish whole wild salmon and she stuffed it with gooseberries and bread and she cooked the kajivas out of it. (laughs) And I... I, I sort that's of, turned you off gooseberries ever in, since. Yeah, because I wept inside at the oh, at the waste of this beautiful fish and these beautiful gooseberries. Isn't it funny how many bad food memories involve overcooking? <laughs> what have we, we got, got here? We've got blackberries mm-hmm. and boysenberries. Yeah. How are your berries going? Oh, they're coming she along. Grows, she, I mean, Annie <laughs> grows the best berries. It's I'm really another... jealous of her berries. They're actually... Anna, Our strawberries Anna, are starting. They're her raspberries on the other side. Your upside-down strawberries. Yeah, my upside-down strawberries and the ones out in the field. They're all mm. growing beautifully. means the Labrador is very busy. <laughs> um, and there's, there's the thing that must be always in a pot. Horseradish. Yes. Mm. Because... It'll takes take over. over. Yeah. Horseradish and comfrey. Comfrey's also yeah. in a pot. Yeah, it's in a pot. <laughs> what a funny old fellow is comfrey. It is, but the chickens love him. And it, and it makes yeah. the best compost. Compost makes from great comfrey compost. Yeah. is unbelievable. Hmm. Is right? And comfrey tea is extremely good for the garden. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you now pick what, it and make it rot in a... In what a, are these a, here? These are raspberries. These are, okay, my, right. these are from me. These are heritage raspberries. So these will be Paul's autumn crop because yeah. he's got more than enough summer berries over there. Yes, he does. So he Some can... of which he will be giving to you. Now, hold on. My favourite of all flowers, yes. sweet peas. Yes. Such the best smell. Oh. <sighs> that is blissful. It's just not too sweet. It hasn't got that sort of... Overwhelming gardenia sweetness. Yeah, I know. It's, it's just, just it's a subtle. It's just beautiful, isn't it? Mm. And then a, and a bunch of these beside fills, your bed. Fills the room. Yeah, just the best yes. thing. Really, it is. What's the uh, allium in front of it? Leeks. Leeks. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Lovely sort of set of structures you've got. Yeah, we, like, we, we shouldn't we're... surprise me. It's a, <laughs> it's a beautiful space. Well, they they were our broad bean structures. Okay. 
And that's what Annie's saying. Hers, so she, so hers are not ready yet, and we've harvested ours. Your broad beans are finished and harvested. Finished, harvested, and eaten. So are mine, strangely. Yes. How are yours going, Annie? Mine are two feet tall and they are covered in flowers and I was very delighted the other day because I saw a pod that was more than two <laughs> centimetres long. They're best eaten small, young. <laughs> Saves the double pot. Well, I might have them for Christmas because we're having some, you know, some warm weather. <laughs> Don't tease me. He teases me every year about my broad beans. The only advantage I have over you as a gardener. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> What about, Annie, I was telling Jonathan before and Tim that we have great trouble ripening tomatoes because of our cold nights in summer. Yes. You don't have that problem because you have poly houses. I have the poly house. So yes, we helps. tend to, we, we plant most of our tomatoes in the poly house. Um, and the, the good thing about that is it gives us a structure to suspend them from. So we grow all our tomatoes vertically on, on strings that hook over wires that sort of are suspended within the polytunnel and it means that we have a very easy job of sort of maintaining them and picking them out mm. so because all we grow all the indeterminate tomatoes in there which sort of keep going and going and going and then when they get too long for their wires we put the wires on an angle so it sort of changes the oh okay yeah they just get longer and longer and then we do grow our determinate tomatoes outside. And do you get them to ripen? Uh, we did last year. Yeah. So we had but a very late in the season. Very late yeah. in the season. Yeah. So usually sort of, you know, late March, early April. Yes. But that's its so own plus in a way. I mean, it is its own plus. Well, except, yeah. you know, all your friends in Melbourne are, are, are chomping on their tomatoes. They've got harvested in December and January. Yeah. We have to wait till March. But I won't get, I won't get tomatoes in the polytunnel till probably end of January. Yeah. So we're that much mm. further behind. Be patient, people. But it, it, what it does do, though, is it does change. It, it makes it tricky when you're doing succession planting mm. because you want to get the tomatoes out. Yes. But you've had them in for so long <laughs> and you're so excited <laughs> because you actually have ripened some tomatoes. But you're desperately sort of trying to hurry them along so you can put something else in their place. <sighs> what, is, what does Christmas mean to you in the veggie garden? It means that I have a little bit of time off to actually wander it and I peruse it and I just wander about and sort of pick at things and poke at things and hopefully pick broad beans. One day. Yeah. <laughs> They're in shops, you know. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. What are you putting in this empty bed that's been laying fallow, Paul? More, more lettuce, more cucumbers... What's your favourite lettuce? Mine is the minuet. Minuet? Yeah. Mm. Or the cos. Mm. I yours? thought you liked the butter lettuce. I like the butter lettuces, yeah. yeah. But yours? I call all those the butter lettuces, they're Do not. Do you? Yeah, well, they sort of are. Yeah. Mm. I am very fond of a butter lettuce. Yeah. Or they the American, the or as the Americans would call them, a bib lettuce. The small coses, which also, they are also now referred to as gem lettuces. Yes. Mm. So... And we grow. I, I don't I love mind the old lettuces. iceberg. Well, I know it's terribly sort of. I think they're coming back in. I think they're cool again. Are they? Oh, good. Mm. Thank God for that. Well, we grow Rand de Glace, oh. which is the she's ice queen. Far posher over there. Well, no, than it's, us. It's, a, it's a French heirloom. Oh. So it's been around since What's the. What's it called again? Rand de Glace. Okay. The ice queen. Nice. 
Yeah. And she grow, she's an early season one for us. Mm. So she, she doesn't like the heat. Uh, but, um, you know, it is a, it's a beautiful lettuce. It's very curly and mm. very tight and perfect with petit pois. The big difference between Annie's vegetable garden and our vegetable garden is we buy seedlings from nurseries. She actually grows her own seedlings, which gives her a far greater range mm. of plant material to select from. Yeah. Like your seed ranges are extensive, aren't they? They're enormous. Yeah. The catalogues to... are like Christmas. Yeah. It's like, you know, when I, when I sit up in bed in June looking at seed catalogues because we start sowing a lot of our stuff in July on heat beds and all mm. sorts of things, is that, that sort of back end of June when I'm selecting seeds for the year, it's very exciting. Paul, what are these things that I lust after in your garden? My rhubarb forcing pots and my, my endive... Blanching pots. Oh, yes. Little ones. Little shorter ones, yes. So the idea is if you. if you deprive light from these two plants, they get sweeter, don't they? The they sugars, do. The sugars rise in the stalks more. And they've got little caps on them. And so the English invented them first. They put them over their rhubarb in the winter to protect them. And then the rhubarb grew up and they took the little lid off and they got the light. They grew taller. But you pick them and they're like all the colour's gone out of the stem and they're sweeter. And it's a very special thing in England to have the first of the forced rhubarb and it's the most perfect pale pink, yeah. isn't it? And do you think it's sweeter? Oh, it's much sweeter. But yeah. the, the one that I like forcing the most is endive. Yeah. And that is, um, you know, it's always perfect for the, you know, the, the classic French salads. Hmm. Yeah, so a Lyonnaise salad that has, you know, endive that's been blanched so it's sweet and it's white and it has a poached egg and croutons and lardons of bacon and a little bit of uh, dressing that's made in the pan from the bacon juices. It's just delicious. Let's head back that way. <laughs> head back towards the food. On Blueprint, we are spending a little early Christmas at Paul Bangay's Stonefields with Annie Smithers, Tim Edwistle and Paul Bangay. And Ruby the Spaniel. He's gone off. Hello, Annie. Hello, Jonathan. Now, Mr Colin Bissett... Yes? ...is preparing our little Blueprint Roadshow, looking at, looking at items that you three have brought. What, what have you brought for Colin's consideration? Well, I brought something that is quite new to my life, but I think will become a great favourite, a great favourite of mine... And my lovely wife gave me a shepherd's crook. Oh, goodness. And she gave me a shepherd's crook because I am a little infatuated by my two and now three miniature Cheviot sheep. Have you crooked them? Uh, <laughs> um, for many years of my life, I thought that one of the things I would like to do if I wasn't a cook was I would like to go and be a, go to a sheep herder. Well, now you've got the tools. So now I've got the tools and I've got the sheep. And actually crooking an animal is a lot harder than you think. So, but <laughs> the thing that I'm fascinated by is it's the perfect tool for a small landholder to actually wrangle their creatures with. Because sort of, you know, mm. the maintenance of... Lots of animals. There's specific equipment for it and yarding and this and that. But you don't want to always have, you know, ugly yards in your house. 
So Susan got me a shepherd's crook so that I could catch them. Let's see what Colin thinks of that. Colin. Annie, you're right. A shepherd's crook is a lovely thing, as beautiful leaning in the hallway as when being used. I love how the slender wooden shaft of yours is given a touch of flamboyance with the hooked end made from horn. It seems to belong to your cheviot sheep. Like a kitchen knife, a shepherd's crook needs to feel balanced. This is a multi-purpose tool, not only a staff to support a shepherd as they amble through Arcadia or lean on it watching their flock, but with a hook ready to nudge a sheep or goat or pig to the right path or draw it back from a dangerous edge. It's no wonder they've been imbued with more symbolism than most other tools. You find them carved into ancient Egyptian sarcophagi and stone statues in sites such as Karnak. The Met Museum in New York has a collection of beautifully worked crook heads dating back to 1200 BC, fashioned in bronze at the Cypriot settlement of Kurion. The idea of herding and control was seductive, becoming an icon in Christianity, transformed into a bishop's crozier as a symbol of office, and in images of Christ shepherding the flock of humanity. Shepherds and shepherdesses have been a constant theme through the history of art, sometimes as symbols of country innocence and prettiness, or in representations of Greek and Roman myths like Selene or Diana falling in love with the sleeping shepherd Endymion, whose handsomeness was rewarded by the gift of eternal life. Only the idea backfired and he was condemned to eternal sleep. Not too asleep that he couldn't father 50 daughters, mind you, but that's shepherd energy for you. The crook remains a talisman of country life, imbued with tradition and, like the scythe, laden with meaning. An object of grace. Just like Annie in the kitchen, in fact. <laughs> How lovely this is. It is very lovely. What do we have for lunch? What are we having for lunch? We're having, um... We're... Oh, I can smell it. Can you smell it? Smells it smells rather good. I hope it's not burning. <laughs> well, What's Jonathan, we're having we're having for lunch what I refer to as Annie's Christmas favourites. Okay. Now the reason they're called that is because uh, yeah. During the year, I do these wacky um, cooking classes. Yes. And I always do some Christmas classes. And... Oh, I, look, at, look at that. I try and bring recipes to the table that make it a little easier for people on Christmas Day. Yes. So we are having... And I also very much like a traditional Christmas... So this is a little stuffed and rolled chicken. Look at that. With potatoes. And then in here, we have 
a beautiful oh. glazed oh, Lord. ham. Yes. With a marmalade glaze. Oh, I'm crying inside. Are you crying inside? Uh, doesn't it smell like Christmas? It does. Now tell me about this chicken. Well, well hang the on, there's process more. Here. Oh, sorry, there's more. And then we've got <laughs> this lovely brined turkey breast <laughs> that's been roasted with Kaiserfleisch and sage that I'll be serving with a roasted garlic mayonnaise. And then to finish the lunch, I'm going to make you put your nose in this. Yes, go on. Oh, that is the, the that pudding. is my prune and armagnac pudding. The armagnac is strong in that way. The armagnac <laughs> is strong. But this little chicken... Well, let's this, talk about all of these things. Well, this little chicken has been roasted, uh, has been boned. Yep. It's been stuffed with a mixture of breadcrumbs, apple, lemon and prunes soaked in armagnac. Um, that stuffing's put down the middle, then it's tied up with string and roasted. I love it as a Christmas dish because it is delicious hot, Mm. it is delicious at room temperature, and it is delicious cold. So, and you can cook it, you can cook it, you know, the day before if it's going to be a very hot, hot Christmas day, and you slice it and serve it cold. It looks beautiful sliced on a platter, but it also looks lovely if you're doing a plated Christmas. Needless to say, the recipe will be on the blueprint page at the Radio National website. I think that we will go with great... uh, I'm just changing an oven rack there. Great Christmas generosity. Mm. And we shall put all, all four of the Christmas recipes... Brilliant. Annie's Christmas favourites. So we've got the boned and stuffed chicken. Yeah. The and beautiful then... turkey breast here and the Kaiser flesh. So this is actually a recipe from Andrew McConnell. Mm-hmm. So he did this in the Saturday paper years ago. It looks that, that slightly gothic McConnell touch. There. It, it, does, it does look a bit gothic. Um, but when it's sliced, it's sort of like the most wonderful, festive version of Vitella Tonato. So we've got the turkey that I've brined, I've wrapped in Kaiserfleisch, I've roasted. Then I've made a mayonnaise and I include some of the juices from the pan, Mm -hmm. um, a couple of anchovies, some a head of roasted garlic, some lemon juice. It gets sprinkled with some capers and the crisp bits of bacon. And so that mayonnaise and bacon and turkey and things. So for me, it's very delicious on Christmas Day. But the best thing about it is it's the easiest thing in the world to chuck in some fresh white bread on Boxing Day. Yes. And it's like taking a club sandwich to the cricket. Wow. It's already done. It's you know, white yes. meat, One. bacon, mayonnaise, bit of lettuce, we're all good. One stop. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, in the oven, we Here's have the, ham uh, again. the beautiful glazed ham. Now tell me about the glaze. So the glaze is brown sugar. Uh, orange juice, orange marmalade, and a bit of Dijon mustard. Mm-hmm. The ham has been studded with cloves. Um, uh, you know, so you take the skin off, slash the fat, decorate it with a bit of clove, pour the pour the uh, glaze over it, um, or half the glaze. Yep. Yes, keep and some what, in reserve. Keep your... some in reserve to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. But what I do do is I add a couple of cups of water to the bottom of the pan. Because the last thing anyone wants to do on Christmas night or Boxing Day morning is clean a burnt ham pan. <laughs> yes. But the other thing is, and this is this will this will really make some people think, 
um, some in a good way, some in a bad way, is that once you've done the ham and you tip all of those juices out, so you'll have the beautiful flavour from the ham and the glaze and things in the bottom, and you'll have a layer of fat from the process of heating the ham and rendering some of that fat in there... Mm -hmm. Tip that into a bucket because there are some folk among us that like to fry slices of Christmas pudding in the leftover ham fat the next day. <laughs> That's so wonderful. <laughs> and you think Mr McConnell's uh, turkey looks gothic. <laughs> That's glorious. It is glorious. It's all the flavours, of course. Well, look, the Canadians swear by maple syrup and bacon. There you you know, there's always the, the sweetness salt, with sweet, pork. Bubabi. Salt and sweet <laughs> in Asian pork cookery. So why can't we have a little bit of Christmas pudding in hand? fried fat. <laughs> Well, you have been busy. I have been busy. It's a great time, though, for food. It's, it's a great time to prepare something which is special and celebratory. It is, breath away. it is the time to do beautiful, beautiful stuff. And look, I think on a, just, just to hark back to you know, the, other, the other part of my life is that Barry has some beautiful broad beans in the fridge for me and I have some artichokes and asparagus and some glorious green vegetables for my lovely, uh, my lovely vegan friend, my wife. And as we've been talking about lettuces in the veggie yes. garden. What have we got here? So we've got, this is a beautiful, this is in fact a beautiful little butter lettuce mm -hmm. that grows small, delicate leaves. Lovely leaf. Green yeah. oak leaf and some spinach for Susan. So, Perfect. you know, we, we will make her something delicious even though she doesn't eat what we eat. Christmas is for everybody. Christmas is for everybody. A very happy vegan Christmas to our vegan friends. Absolutely. It's quite fun being here, isn't it? It's very... It's, I have to say that I do love cooking in Paul's kitchen. Describe the kitchen for us, because it's, it's, it's a pretty fine kitchen. The kitchen... Well, the kitchen's much larger than my commercial kitchen. He has a Laconche stove, so he has double ovens. He has two hot plates, a simmer plate and a grill plate. So the oven itself is a delight to work with, with a architecturally inspired French chateau-style range hood that is hidden under the formwork. Lovely matte black benches, which I'm very fond of. It's incredibly tidy. Yes, you know, it is, there's not a it, thing out of place. Well, there's nothing out of place. And I know that um, both Paul and Barry, you know, they entertain a great deal here. But it's, it's that extraordinary combination of being very useful and organised and disciplined, mm. but it also has a lot of blank space so that you can make a terrible mess, but can be tidied away perfectly. So it really is that, that sort of you know, a beautifully designed kitchen, so it makes it very easy to work in and very easy to tidy up and, you know, just looks... My kitchen's far messier than this. I'm afraid, I'm not as, I'm I don't afraid put, that's true. Yeah, but I don't have as many cupboards. When you think of all the cupboards that Paul you've got has... To, yeah, you've got to find places for things somewhere. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, yeah. When you run out of places, you just leave them on the bench. You've got a tiny kitchen. You've got a few things on your bench too, but well, you start throwing I, stones. Our kitchen is tiny. Yeah. So, so it's spacious. It's got beautiful. It's it's very it's exceptionally mm. tasteful and beautiful 
but a delight to cook in. Well, and as we stand here too in the kitchen, at the, the bench at the sink, we, we gaze out towards the Christmas table. We do. Out there on the terrace. So do you think it's time that we uh, start having a bit of lunch? Serve up. Serve up. I'll start, I'll start slicing and plattering. See you at table. All right, darling. Happy Christmas. Paul, where are we going to sit? We're going to sit on our wonderful peacock cloth table under our Vetus Cogniti covered pergola on the north side of the house looking at the view. We've got places. We do have places now. Where would you like people? I think anywhere, really. I'm going to sit here. The people who have seen the view countless times can sit on this side. (laughs) Tim should sit on that side because he hasn't seen the view. Maybe Tim, Annie, Barry... Me, you, Susan. Perfect. Okay. And here is Annie. Hurrah. Yeah. <laughs> we Hurrah. should applaud. Hey. <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> it is Christmas. Oh, but wait, there's more. Oh, there oh. is. There's certainly more. <laughs> glazed ham. Nothing better than glazed ham at Christmas because it goes on and on for it's, days. It's forever, really. It is forever, isn't it? <laughs> and if you get to New Year's Eve, you know you're doing well. Oh, look at those broad beans. Did you grow them, Annie? No, I did not, Jonathan. <laughs> I did not, Jonathan. Barry Broad, broad bean envy. Barry. <laughs> well, so there you go. Can I just say, before we, before we tuck in, thank you so much, everybody, little blueprint team, for, for gathering here and for all your wonderful words and thoughts this year. How, how glorious. And what fun we've had. Have you really? Yes, you, we really have. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy Christmas. And, and thank you, Blueprint listeners all. Um, program's there for you on the ABC Listen app. You can check it out. And uh, we'll have some summer programming coming up in the weeks. So you'll, you'll hear these people again, I'm sure, in the summer season. And we'll be back with, with more rudimentals and more garden strolls in 2023. Same blueprint time, same blueprint channel. I'm Jonathan Green. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.